Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes references to suicide by hanging, as well as graphic depictions of torture and self-mutilation. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. There are some people who just really, really love Halloween. The family that fills their massive yard with ghoulish props and creepy soundtracks. The suburban moms with their covered bowls of peeled grapes and jello brains. The people who design the most intense horror and haunted house experiences in the world. It all comes from the same impulse, the desire to scare and be scared to capture and control the things that would traumatize us outside of the bounds of a haunted house or a movie theater. The shock of a good scare, adrenaline rushing, blood pumping, makes us feel more alive than anything else. But as both horror media and haunted houses grow in number and ambition, a small faction of fans have demanded more and more intense experiences from snuff film-like realism to physical torture. It can be difficult to deliver these stunts in a believable way, and the risks go up exponentially as a result. The laws of physics don't care if it's fake or not, especially when there's a noose around a performer's neck. How real is too real? And would you be able to spot the difference? Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, we take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth and share their stories. This episode is part of our Urban Legends Halloween special. Every day for the month of October, we're presenting our spooky spin on an urban legend, then diving into the history of the horror. Like it or not, each terrifying tale contains a grain of truth. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today's urban legend is a story about a freak accident that seems too strange to be true. A haunted house stunt gone wrong. A real horror in a land of make-believe. Halloween is about blending the real and the unreal. But when a hanged man is mistaken for a hanging decoration, the squeals of delight change to screams of horror. Hangings are some of the most difficult stunts to fake, both on stage and on camera. You need a professional rigging team, a reliable harness, and a breakaway noose that is never forced to support any weight. Unfortunately, many people in haunted attractions don't let a lack of budget prevent them from attempting this dangerous stunt. It has resulted in at least four Halloween stunt-related deaths alone 
since 1990. In the case of 17-year-old Brian Jewell, over 40 people were driven past his corpse as part of a haunted hayride in Lakewood, New Jersey, until a worker realized Jewell had missed his cue to speak. Amateur horror is a growing community. From no-budget short films to off-the-grid haunted house experiences, where guests sign up to be humiliated in saw-like scenarios. It's the Wild West out there. These scares aim to blur the line between reality and fiction, making sure the disturbing action feels real to keep guests in a persistent state of shock. But when the line between reality and performance disappears in the artificial darkness of a haunted attraction, do any of us really know where the show stops and the true suffering begins? Joe had climbed three of the top five tallest mountains in the world. He base jumped so often that he felt nothing as he plummeted to earth. He dived with sharks, cageless and not. He'd chased more than a few tornadoes and hurricanes. At times, he felt there was no danger left to conquer, no new way to test himself. Then, a friend sent him a long-form newspaper article about extreme haunted houses, saying the people who did this had to be crazy. Joe found the only one without a safe word and got on the waitlist immediately. He watched videos from the attraction every day, studying the point where guests at the house tended to break down in the face of the realistic horrors they experienced. He resolved to get farther than them all. It took six months, but the day was finally here. He followed the cryptic instructions in his reservation email, driving to the middle of nowhere, Ohio. He sat in a field with his eyes closed, waiting for it all to start finally enjoying the mix of calm and anticipation he felt before each new thrill. He'd missed it more than life. A van pulled up. Three men in black masks jumped out. They screamed at him, saying that he was weak, that they were going to enjoy making him cry, that he couldn't handle what they had planned for him. Then they slipped a plastic bag over his head and taped it closed. A zip tie bound his hands together. Ninety seconds in, and he was already surprised at how real it all felt. He didn't feel like someone who had paid nearly $300 to be pushed to his limits by the physical and psychological demands of the Huxley Haunted House of Horrors. He felt like someone who had been kidnapped, going to an unknown location with no idea what would happen to him or what price he would have to pay to get out. They stopped at several other spots. Joe could hear the doors opening and closing, feel the brush of other people's legs against his own. He heard a woman giggle uncomfortably, like she was on laughing gas. A loud smack quieted her. He had been ordered to not talk, to not do anything but sit where he belonged, like the dog he was. Joe was surprised to find himself scared of what would happen if he disobeyed. The van jerked to a stop. Joe felt himself being dragged forwards, nearly falling to the dirt as they pulled him out of the car. 
The smell of standing water was overwhelming. The bag over Joe's head was slashed open, the knife only just missing his skin. He caught a glimpse of a field of dry grass extending as far as the eye could see. No buildings, no safe words, no help. One of the men kicked the back of his knees and he toppled to the ground. They shoved his face into a body of brackish water. Joe struggled to breathe. They pulled him out, screaming that he could handle more. They shoved him back under the water again. He struggled against his restraints, wanting desperately to get air back in his lungs. Finally, he was pulled out. His head was pounding. The water tasted like garbage. He could feel something crawling up his nose. A razor-sharp knife snapped the zip tie, but one of the big men was already holding his wrists. One of his kidnappers forced a waiver into his hand. He yelled at Joe to sign it or else. Joe signed it. The man yanked him back up and threw him into the van. He called the experience only the smallest taste of what was in store for him behind Huxley's walls. They drove for another half hour before Joe was shoved out of the van and into a house away from the other guests. He stood in a pitch black room. He reached forward, but found only air. He stepped forward, hoping to get a feel for the size of the space, but large rough hands grabbed him from behind. The nails were too long and the palms were slick with some kind of stickiness he didn't want to contemplate. A hood was thrown over Joe's head, cinched tight enough to choke him. Through a thin layer of fabric, someone whispered against his ear, Welcome to hell. Then the man was gone, and someone else was shoving him into a claustrophobic chain-link tunnel on the floor, barely taller than his shoulders when they forced him to all fours. They ripped the hood off and told him to crawl. If he wasn't fast enough, the rats would be having him for dinner. Joe crawled through the area, barbed wire digging into his sides as he tried to navigate the uneven ground. He could hear the screams of the people who came with him. One of them was already begging to be let out of this contraption. From an unseen speaker came a voice, telling them that they had only just started. They could all surely last a few more hours. Joe felt the skittering of rat claws on his pant leg. He pushed himself to move faster. One of them bit into his skin. He bit his cheek to keep himself from screaming out. He wasn't a wimp. He'd asked for this. The end of the cage was in sight, and someone was already waiting to pick him up. He crawled out and stood up slowly. His knees were already aching, but his adrenaline was spiking. A woman dressed like a rag doll tied him into a straitjacket. She pushed him away from her, and he stumbled backwards into the darkness. When he steadied himself, she was gone, leaving only shadows, quivering as the can lights overhead swung eerily. He didn't wait to push forward, caught somewhere between the fear that he wouldn't continue and the worry that the method they would use to force him onwards would be worse than what lay ahead. He turned the corner to find a strange vignette. 
A woman he recognized from the van was immobilized in what looked to be a rusted dental chair. A man with a plastic axe sticking out of his torso held a pair of clippers. Slowly, he started chopping off sections of her hair, sometimes close enough to draw blood. She screamed for him to stop, but he kept going. Joe didn't know if she had been a plant. She could be. Maybe it was a trick. A test he could fail or pass in exchange for more punishment. She wasn't in any real danger, and she was laying the crying on a bit thick. A woman lunged at Joe before he could decide what to do. Her blonde hair was matted with dirt and blood. Her makeup was smudged, and a bruise was forming on her right eye. He tried to pull away, but the straitjacket prevented him from correcting his balance as he turned. He fell to the floor, his back hitting concrete. He kicked his feet out in front of him, propelling himself backward. She smiled at him, called him a good boy. His head hit the wall. He was cornered. She brandished a dull axe, slick in what looked like fresh blood. The woman waved the axe near his head. Instinctually, he flinched. He tried to remind himself that it was all fake, but he felt the blade slide along his skin in a long but shallow cut. Blood dripped from his cheek to the floor. She brought the axe just under his throat. The woman's attention shifted. His newly bald-headed companion had taken a knife from one of the actors. She was threatening to kill anyone who came near her. One of the actors reached towards her. She slashed at him with the knife. Two others came behind her, wrenching the knife out of her hands and throwing her back into the chair. They strapped her down and put a bucket over her head. One of them smacked the bucket with his hand. She whimpered and went quiet. Joe used the moment to slide his body up the wall. This wasn't what he'd expected. He didn't realize no safe word meant they'd be punished for resistance. The idea of being controlled was far more seductive when you could trust the controller. Another man collected Joe, this time wearing a black balaclava over his head. Two misshapen eye holes were the only indication that there was a human behind the mask. He called over another guy to help him. The two men carried Joe between them. They passed another man who was being force-fed his own vomit. He was crying, large welts on his face, but he was still complying. Joe decided he wasn't going to. He kicked and struggled, telling them they didn't frighten him. They kicked him back, dragging him towards what looked like a white coffin. But when he got close enough, he realized it was worse. It was a freestanding freezer. They threw open the top of the freezer and tossed him inside. His jeans stuck to the frosted bottom immediately. The cold was unlike anything he'd felt before. So low in temperature that it felt like it was burning his skin. The door shut over his head as he screamed. Joe closed his mouth, wanting to conserve his air. He had nothing to distract him from his thoughts in the dark. His shoulders were too broad to fit across the frozen box, so he was left in a forced turn, pinning his arms in place. 
pain surged through his body. There was no other sensation, only torment. He knew that freezer doors could only be opened from the outside. They could forget him. He could die in here, alone, out of state, in some sort of torture experiment that most people hadn't even heard of. They'd probably say it was his fault. He waited patiently. No one came. Seconds stretched into minutes, minutes into what felt like hours. He began to count. When he reached 30 minutes, Joe screamed again. No one responded. So he fell quiet again. He cried, tears freezing to his cheeks. His body was almost completely numb. He was on the verge of losing consciousness, his nervous system shutting down to preserve itself. The light was blinding when they opened the freezer. Then came the splash of frigid water. He screamed, he cried, he begged for them to let him out as the water froze against his skin. He'd do whatever they wanted. They laughed at him. Make up your mind, Joe. Joe struggled against his bindings. He spit at the men, hurled his own vicious words at them. Snot froze onto his face. He sobbed for them to release him. He just wanted to go home. He'd do anything, really, anything. And that was how he met Darren Huxley, the Grand Master of Huxley's House of Horrors. Coming up, Huxley calls on Joe for a favor. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Joe spent months waiting to enter the famed, scariest haunted house in the country. It was more than a house. It was an experience. No safe words, no boundaries. It had surpassed his expectations. A nightmare he never could have conjured. He'd been practically drowned in a drainage ditch and crawled over barbed wire pursued by rats. But the hardest part had been the least aggressive. Sitting in an icy freezer, wearing a straitjacket, buried in darkness. His thoughts ran wild in the small box. By the time they were dumping freezing water on his raw skin, Joe was certain this was his end. It wasn't. Darren Huxley, the owner of the establishment, had been impressed with him. He wasn't an imposing man at first glance. His appearance was more math teacher than Jigsaw. A faded military tattoo peeked from beneath a dirty black t-shirt. His glasses were wire-framed and thin. He looked like he knew all your secrets, but would make you confess them anyway. He watched the whole thing from a web of cameras. Joe had broken a record, longest time spent alone in the freezer. He could handle a good scare. So, Huxley wanted him on the other side of the fence. 
Once he physically recovered from his ordeal, Joe would become part of the attraction. Joe couldn't believe his luck. He had survived. He had been reborn. He could help other people face their fears. He liked the idea of controlling the horror, being part of an experience that made an impact. He slathered the skin around his eyes in grease paint and painted the rest white. It was a simple costume, but he had learned from his own night in the house that it wasn't what you wore that mattered. It was what you did. Huxley showed Joe to his spot on the tour. He would be a corpse coming back to life. It was in the backyard, an area that few people ever reached, and Joe felt honored to have such a prized position. Joe wrapped a sheet tightly around his midsection and ran it up a nearby tree before looping it around his neck. He stepped onto a ladder and secured it to one of the branches, 15 feet off the ground. There was just enough slack that he wouldn't choke, but his hanging would still look real. He slipped on the prop noose. He asked Huxley if he had done everything correctly. Huxley told him he would be fine. Only after the other man walked away did Joe realize that wasn't actually an answer. He'd been hanging for hours. No one had lasted long enough to reach his area of the haunt, but the screams were growing closer. Someone would be coming along soon. He heard the screams and cries of other participants, begging to be let free, and Huxley's flat voice over it all, reminding them that they would only be free when he chose to release them. Joe's own freedom had come at the price of hypothermia and a two-day recovery, but he was happy with this decision, proud even. From his vantage point hanging from the tree, Joe saw someone come into view. It was one of the women that had experienced the haunt with him. She had come back. He couldn't quite remember her name. Rachel, Regina, something with an R. She was holding an axe her face covered in bruises. An actor chased after her, laughing with sadistic glee. Rachel screamed for Huxley to let her out. To Joe's astonishment, Huxley actually answered, voice echoing mechanically over the speakers. Huxley told her he wouldn't let her go. She swung the axe around, but the actor dodged. Her eyes landed on Joe's jerry-rigged harness. Joe wondered if she recognized him. She turned to face the camera. Rachel threatened to kill the actor if Huxley didn't let her out. Over the speakers, Huxley laughed. He'd heard threats a hundred times before. She wasn't special. No one ever did anything. Rachel moved too fast. She swung the axe at the actor's neck. It landed with a sick squelch that sounded nothing like the movies. It was quieter, but somehow more awful. The actor stumbled for a second, his throat partially slashed. Blood sprayed wildly around the area. Rachel dropped the weapon and sank to the ground. She brought up her knees to her chest and sobbed. Joe yelled to Huxley to call an ambulance. Huxley said the police wouldn't believe him if he called. They knew it was a haunt day and that any call of distress would be fake. Waking from her stupor, Rachel screamed. 
She grabbed the axe from the man's throat and ran for the camera. She bashed the lens in repeatedly, screaming about how much she hated this place. She just wanted to be free. Joe tried to stay quiet. Rachel had seemed too shocked to register his presence or hear his pleas to Huxley. Rachel stumbled over to the metal gate. She swung at it with the axe, barely making any sort of dent. She pulled back and did it again. Joe tried not to move. He tried not to breathe. He swung softly in the wind. When she attacked the gate again, Joe looked up at the tree. He stretched as much as he could, his fingertips nearly grazing the closest branch. But he wasn't tall enough. Rachel's swings were wild, uncoordinated, and getting closer and closer to Joe's position. Joe kicked his feet out in front of him, trying to get some sort of motion going. He timed his movements with Rachel's attack at the gate. She hadn't noticed him yet, and he prayed that he wasn't making enough noise to draw her attention. More than anything, he wanted to avoid the fate of his fellow performer. Something gave way. He felt the sheet loosening around his midsection. Then, a tightening around his neck. Joe couldn't breathe. The pressure around his neck was growing. He grabbed the sheet and tried to pull it away from his neck, but he wasn't strong enough to fight gravity. He heard the door open. Rachel dropped the axe. She ran out of the entrance and into the night. Huxley emerged out of the shadows, a remote in his hand. So he had freed her by choice, all according to his design. A loud clang rang out from further within the maze, and Huxley withdrew into the gloom, so Joe could barely see him. Or perhaps the lack of oxygen was blurring his vision. Through the shadows, another man, Sandy-haired and wild-eyed stumbled out into the backyard. No one was following him, and he stopped to catch his breath. Joe squeaked out a cry, begging him to look up. Thank God the man did, but he did not call for help. The other man studied him, calculating, wondering whether this was a trick or not. Huxley grinned teeth glinting like fangs in the semi-darkness. He pulled out his phone and started recording. Joe's legs kicked out wildly. His hands were straining to hold himself up. He pleaded for help, but the men just stood there, the stranger watching Joe and Huxley watching them both. Joe's hands dropped slowly to his side. He gasped, his body shaking. No air came in. Joe used what little breath he had to beg for help, to scream that it was real. It was getting hard to form words. The pressure was too great. His brain felt foggy. He gave one last scream. It barely made a sound, getting lost amongst the chaos of the screams from inside the haunt. Joe's gaze moved from the stranger's glazed eyes to the camera's blinking red light as he took his last few breaths. Huxley 
never stopped recording. Seventeen-year-old Brian Jewell's accidental hanging during a haunted hayride in 1990 is one of the most high-profile hanging-gone-wrong incidents. But later, that same month, a 15-year-old died while attempting to stage a gallows scene during a Halloween party in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Associated Press reported the death of 14-year-old Caleb Reb, an employee at a Sparta, Michigan haunted hayride in 2001, Caleb told his mother that he felt awkward jumping out of the woods to scare guests, so he asked other teen workers about replacing a hanging skeleton decoration with his hanging body. He miscalculated his own weight after placing his head in the noose, and was thrown backward. His co-workers believed he was acting as he asphyxiated. America Haunts, a trade organization for the Halloween attraction industry, estimates that there are over 1,200 haunted attractions charging admission fees in the United States. While the majority of these attractions operate within major safety and fire codes, a community of underground, high-intensity haunted experiences have sprung up around the country, many of which escape regulation by operating as nonprofits. Many of these extreme haunted houses are inspired by Blackout, an immersive horror experience created by theater artists Josh Randall and Christian Thor in 2009. Randall and Thor designed a solitary experience for their guests that integrates their own fears and insecurities, collected in surveys before their first session. Participants are tackled, chased, humiliated, and even waterboarded. But even blackout begins by asking you your safe word. Not every extreme haunt is so accommodating. Roving haunt McKamey Manor doesn't believe in safe words. Billing itself as the most extreme haunt in the world, a tour of the manor is meant to last four to eight hours. Guests are subjected to violence, claustrophobic confinement, and forced feeding of bodily fluids. Most of the content within this episode is based on actual reports from guests at McKamey Manor, with the only changes being the use of real weapons and live rats. Several former guests at McKamey Manor have attempted legal action against the attraction, but the waiver they are forced to sign as the first phase of the attraction hasn't been successfully challenged in court. Horror is subjective. What appeals to one person may not appeal to another. But while we chase a thrill, either for ourselves or others, we must remember that danger is primal information. A warning from our sense memory to keep us on this earth. It can be fun to fight it, to approach the gap between the living and the dead. But when you stand on the precipice, you're at the mercy of a single push. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back tomorrow with a new urban legend and on Thursday with a new haunted place. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just stream Haunted Places on Spotify. Just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Until tomorrow, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. I'm Greg Polson.